the goodness and the beauty of God and how he works and how he calls and claims victory. And God, we're reading these stories right now. We just thank you that you are our great defender, that you've seen problems we did not know existed, that even as you come, as we read in the Gospels, the Jews didn't understand that their need for a Savior was an internal need, not an external one. They didn't need an earthly kingdom. They needed Jesus on the throne of their heart. And God, we have watched this play out time and time again. Where your goodness shows up, saves us, takes care of us. We share communion together. We see Jesus winning the ultimate battle. The defender of our hearts, the defender of our eternal souls. Jesus, even right now, the Bible says you stand at the throne of God as our advocate, as our attorney. And as the enemy would speak slander and lies about us, or even things that, God help us, are actually true, you stand there and you tell the Father, we're yours. That blood you shed and that body that was broken was broken for us. And so, Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the hero of the story. You are the defender of our lives. We thank you, Holy Spirit, this morning for being here with us. Thank you for the music, the joy, the celebration. Thank you for the children and the noise. We thank you for the people that are here. We thank you for the opportunity to assemble. We thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've given. This morning, help us to give it back to you. And say, use it for your kingdom. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we get to pray. Amen. Amen. Man, you all look awesome this morning. You sound awesome this morning. Huh? You're wearing it out. I'm proud of you. Some of you got here early. Proud of you. Yeah. Amen. All right. We'll be releasing for children's church class downstairs, and big kid class will be in the back classroom. Miss Amy is going to take you all back there this morning and whip you into shape. Every time we sing the Defender song, you all have no idea how hard it is for me not to belt it out again as I come up and get started. That song is still playing through my head right now. I might even break out a little whistle solo. Wow. We did have a good crowd. They all disappeared. Um, man, the Lord has been so good. Uh, he has blessed our church so well. So thankful for those that are um, here this morning. We're thankful and we're praying for those that aren't here that are missing this morning. Uh, we're praying for peace. We're praying for uh, good knowledge, for wisdom, uh, for those that are making decisions that affect everybody. And um, so we need the Lord's peace. We need the Lord's movement, His touch. We need the Holy Spirit to give us things we don't uh, naturally have access to. Uh, you and I are living in really, really weird days, uh, and in that, 
we need to be uh, in our prayer life, in our time with God, we need to be tapping into his supernatural wisdom to have eyes to, to see and ears to hear uh, things that this world doesn't have access to. Do you understand what I'm saying? God promises those things to those that desire uh, to have them. So we need to be praying for them. We need to be asking God for them as we navigate the days ahead. As a church, as far as the church goes, we've been asking you all, the leadership team, constantly to let us know uh, where you're at, what's going on, what you would like to do. We even had some uh, comments uh, last week about the nursery, maybe trying to start that up. So we just need people to start talking about what we're comfortable with because um, figuring out how we're going to minister as a church uh, to the people that we have and uh, how to do it well. Amen? Amen. All right, well, I love you. I guess we're going to get into it. Nobody's, nobody's real chatty this morning. Second Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. Um, I love, and Ray, Ray hit it when he talked about how God works things out. I love this idea. We're going to read one of the hardest, most wicked stories in all of Scripture. We're going to read it in the context of communion before service. We're going to read it in the context of dwelling on the cross, dwelling on the brokenness, dwelling on the shed blood of Jesus, dwelling on the broken body of Jesus. We're going to read it in that context so that you and I understand that this story is one story. We're going to read this morning about a man after God's own heart. We're going to read about that story. We're going to read about David, who that was written by. And we're going to read the nastiest piece of his journal. You know that one thing you've done in your life that you really hope the, the lids never pulled off of? You know that series of events in your life when you were like, man, I just wasn't who I was supposed to be. Do you know that series of events? God has given that to us with David's life for you and I to read through, to see, to study, to try to run from. And he's given that in the context of communion this morning where the blood of Jesus is shed for the sins of David and for your sins and mine. The body of Christ is broken for your sins and for mine. That in that moment of the cross, you see the glory, the goodness, and the love of God run headlong into the justice of God. And in that moment, you and I see both fulfilled ultimately. Do you understand that the judge couldn't just say you're not guilty and let you walk into his kingdom? That's not how this works. He couldn't just do that. And so that leaves us with a huge problem. You and I have to earn something that we cannot earn. Because you see, the judge not only gets to see our actions from start to finish, the judge not only gets to see that, he gets to hear our hearts. He gets to hear our words. And so as we get ready to read through this story, I need you to understand the timing of things matters to God. And the timing of this story is we're going to read the story of David, a man after God's own heart. We're going to read it, his worst moments. We're going to see that God never removes that title from him, even though these moments are absolutely wicked. And then we've already seen that Jesus has provided a way for you and I to be clean again. Washed white as snow. 
Because you see, that is the standard. That is God's standard. Not halfway, not better than Hitler, right? Like we love to compare certain directions, right? Like we always compare financially to people that have less than us, and we always compare morally to people that are worse than us, at least that we deem them, right? So Hitler's the standard for, right, like who God accepts and who God doesn't accept. Like I'm not as bad as him, right? So God must be cool with me. Listen, the standard is perfection, absolute perfection. So we looked a couple weeks ago as a man after God's own heart. I told you, what does it look like to do that? We need to be faithful. We need to be experienced and brave and repentant. We need to be active and submissive to God. We need to be humble when he corrects us. We need to be intimate with the Lord. We need to be thankful and we need to be tenacious. If we're going to be men and women after God's own heart, that's what it looks like. Brave, tenacious, intimate, humble, thankful. Love those words. And those signify David's life. And last week I showed you the gospel in the Old Testament. This is the story of Mephibosheth. Right? And I begged you last week, please tell me that you see it. And I know we ran through it just a little too fast. That is my fault. I did not steward your time properly last week. I will do that better in the future on Family Sunday. But I wanted you to see God in that story showing us the gospel. See, David is the king. Mephibosheth is the last person that has access or claim to the throne. He's crippled. He's living on his own somewhere. David doesn't even know he exists. He is an enemy's son. And David seeks him and brings him in. That is the story of you and I. Do you understand? You and I were enemies to the throne of God. We were living in a land with no hope. No future, no pasture. We were crippled and as good as dead. Do you see the gospel? Do you see the gospel in this beautiful story? And it's 2 Samuel chapter 9. My notes are wrong, and I'm sorry about that. Hopefully that's the last time it happened this morning. No guarantees, though. He's invited into the king's presence. He's invited into the king's table. That's intimacy. You're going to eat with me. Intimacy with the king. This enemy... This grandson of Saul, the enemy of David, the one that tried to kill him on repeat, Mephibosheth gets invited in. And he's going to sit at the king's table where there is protection, provision, and the presence of the king. That is the invitation you and I have as believers. It is what God has done, what he has given to you and I. And that blessing is going to be there as long as David is king. You know the beauty of that? Our blessing is going to be there as long as Jesus is king. And he's already showed it. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. He is eternal. And you and I, according to John 17, are in him. That is amazing. Ephesians would say you and I have been sealed up by the Holy Spirit as a down payment for heaven to come. That churning in you this morning before we took communion, that churning in you that says lean into God, lean into his word, lean into his people, uh, repent of sin, that, that churning in you that says you are a child of God, that is a down payment of the blessing to come. You make a down payment on a vehicle, you make a down payment on a home, right? The idea is that eventually it will be yours. The bigger the down payment, 
uh, the more safe people feel that you're going to finish the process, right? God has given you the down payment of himself and the Holy Spirit to seal you up until the day of redemption. That's how serious he is about finishing this process. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. And so we're running mountaintops, mountaintops. I mean, it's like skipping from mountaintop to mountaintop in David's life. Man, he's just hitting home runs, home runs, home runs. Man, that looks amazing. Boy, his character is wonderful. Watch him honor God. He's a man after God's own heart. He's writing the Psalms. Look at this beauty. When someone responds to him evilly, he responds in kind. Not the same kind, but kindness. Just mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop. And then heartbreak of heartbreaks. Second Samuel chapter 11. Two phrases in this passage. Or there's two words in this passage, one phrase that blows my mind. I named the sermon, It Happened. Absolutely heartbreaking. It happened. Look at the passage with me. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read through. Let's go through the first uh, couple verses here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened. It happened. If, if, it, if, that, if that doesn't make you want to cry right now, it will here shortly. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am And it happened. Look at verse 1 with me. When kings go out to war. Friends, I want to tell you one of the most dangerous positions you'll ever be in in your life is to be out of position. One of the most dangerous places to be is where you're not supposed to be. You are supposed to be somewhere else. I can't read this story and not think about the creation story in Adam and Eve and the fall. Because if you remember that story, the enemy comes in and he interacts with who? Eve. The Bible says she is deceived by the enemy. Here's my problem. Where's her husband? Where's Adam? He is out of position. David is out of position. The Bible is clear. At the time of year when kings go to war, what happens? I don't know what happens with David. I don't know. 
but he stayed home. And he sent someone else to do what he was supposed to be doing. And he sets in motion a chain of events, not by sinning, listen to me very, very carefully, but by being out of position. I have to ask you, I have to ask me, are you out of position somewhere? What happens when husbands get out of position? When wives get out of position? What happens when church members get out of position? At your job, what happens when you're out of position? There is somewhere you are supposed to be. It is an active process that takes you interacting in it, and you're not there. What happens? Chaos ensues. I cannot tell you enough. This doesn't start with adultery. Starts with a compromise. Hebrews would say, Let us lay aside every weight and sin. Hebrews chapter 12. Weight and sin. This story, from the first time I read it with, with eyes open and the Holy Spirit speaking to me, this story has wrecked me from this idea that bad things happen not. By starting with sin, they happen with the first compromise that leads me into a position that is out of position. If I am out of position as a husband, as a pastor, as a father, something else is taking place. And instead of me being there to guard it, instead of me being safe under God's blessing of what he has called me to do, I am outside of that. And I'm leaving open my family. I'm leaving open my church. I'm leaving open my own soul. One of the most dangerous ones that I can think of as a pastor is when you hear people that have been in ministry and then something has happened and they're no longer in ministry, a lot of times you will find this to be the start of their issues. The wife will make comments about how the husband had an affair with the church. He was doing a good thing. He was doing a godly thing, but he was spending too much time out of position. So instead of being a husband and instead of being a father, he was playing pastor to a bunch of people in a church. And that sounds really good, but he is out of position. He's not tending the flock properly because he's not stewarding the flock that he needs to steward first. And so this doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. Friends, this could be too much work. Nod your head if you understand what I'm saying. Out of position doesn't start with an affair. It starts with too much work. It starts with the decision to be somewhere else and to take your time and your talent somewhere else. It can be a hobby. This is so important, and I'm going to hammer this point home because it has to be. Because a lot of times we think we are okay as long as we're not in the, in the black. Right? As long as we're in a gray area, we're cool. Like the Lord is okay. This really isn't something he's told me not to do. When you're out of position, when you're not stewarding your family well, your church well, your community well, you are out of position. With regards to the church, you know, we're, we're, we're slipping into a weird time right now. We are six months into a pandemic. Some people have not seen a church body now for six months. You have got to be careful. You're slipping into this position. I love God's people and I love God's church. If you find yourself lonely, isolated, and by yourself, you are violating something. You may not come to the buildings, but you better be around some people. 
small group, a Sunday school, leave before the big crowd gets here, sit in the corner of a room 30 feet away. You better find a way to gather with God's people because you can't violate God's commandments in the name of safety. You just can't do it. Never seen it happen that it turned out okay. You and I look across the world and we honor we honor people in other countries that gather knowing that any moment someone may kick in the door and shoot them in the head. Do you understand? We honor them as courageous. They may be thrown into prison. China, the Middle East, we can't even talk about where these missionaries are serving and you and I look and say, praise God, they are so brave. But we won't meet with Jesus' people for six months because we're scared. Don't want to dole out shame. I know this is really serious to some people, but I'm telling you, take precautions and do not be lonely. Do not be isolated. The enemy will eat you up. Jesus calls us sheep for a reason. Me his flock and me his shepherd. Don't let the enemy tell you you're cool by yourself. This Lone Ranger stuff is not Christian. It's satanic. Out of position out of position how many times in my in my decade of being a pastor of a church and you see some people and the lord is working and he's doing something and all of a sudden they disappear and by the time you catch up with them a month or two or six later you found out that chaos has just unloaded and it starts being out of position prioritize the things god says to prioritize be in them seek First, the kingdom of God, and God will give over everything else you need. I told you a long time, the prayer for my life is so simple, it's, it's, it's imbecilic, right? Like anybody could repeat, Lord, just put me in the position that brings you the most glory. That's it. If he answers one prayer, everything else will line up properly. Whether I'm in a hospital bed, or on the stage speaking to thousands, or stewarding our church, if he just answers that prayer, I'll be the husband I need to be. I'll be the father I need to be. I'll be the pastor I need to be. I'll be your brother that I need to be. I'll be the community member I need to be. The city of St. Albans will have a better fireman. They will have a better brother in the fire station. They will have somebody better show up on the call. If he just answers that one prayer, put me in the position that brings you the most glory. Because the opposite of that prayer is to be out of position. Look at verse 2. Boy, we are two verses in. I'm sorry. It happened. It happened. So we go from being out of position to being tempted. Out of position. If he's on the front lines with Joab and the armies, there is no temptation. But he's out of position, and now he's tempted. It sounds so fast in, in hindsight when you read it like this. It happened. It sounds so fast. Let me tell you something. Falls like this don't happen that fast. They start in a process. And they end in disaster. When you and I ignore small signs, when we ignore uh, small things about our character uh, that we see going on in our life, when we ignore them in the people around us, by the time it's said and done, you and I land in a position where you think, man, if I would have just been a little more aggressive a year ago, if I would have just cried a little harder, if I would have just repented in my own life, 
If I would have struggled and declared war on my own sin, I would not have been here. But when we get to read it, verse 2, it happened. It just flows right off. Looking backward, it may look that way. Going forward, it never happens that way. It's always a process. You don't wake up one day serving the Lord, honoring Him, loving Him, loving His people in the Word, in your prayer life, surrounded by godly people. You don't wake up Monday there and wake up Tuesday in the middle of this catastrophic sin. That's not how this works. You wake up Tuesday and you may be a little less passionate about things you need to be. You wake up Tuesday and you're a little less into the Word, you're a little more rushed, you need a little more time at work. Uh, you're worried about getting there on time. You're a little short with your family, a little short with your children. You are all of these things that are very small. And by the time you wake up a month later, you're in the middle of a mess. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Step three, you're intrigued. Something has your attention and then it has it on repeat. Whatsoever things are good, holy, true, righteous, whatever's good, whatever's to be celebrated, let your mind dwell on these things, right? The opposite is true. My mind is dwelling on something that I know is a temptation, that I know is evil and I'm entertaining it. a little bit. It's not a big deal. It's just rotating over every couple hours. Some temptation that's right there. Right? Maybe it's it doesn't have to be sexual in nature. It can be it can be your neighbor's home, your neighbor's car. You and I can covet things and they can roll over on us. It can be flipping on the TV and being pummeled with commercials about how your life stinks. And so you're thinking about how good it could be or what it should be or if you just did this at work or if you just cheated a little bit. Maybe uh, if I just moved a little bit of money around. I, listen, do not think it's just one area of sin that this stuff kicks in. It's everywhere. Any moment that you know, man, I should not be thinking about this. The Holy Spirit says stop it, repent, run away. He is intrigued. But I love the servant's wisdom. What does the servant do? The servant comes in and says, is this not Bathsheba? Right? This is a real person, David. This is a person made in the image of God. I love this one. The daughter of Eliam, and I would add this, and the daughter of God, David, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Giving her personhood. Give her a name. She's a daughter. Finally, she's a wife. David, that's the wife of Uriah. That is one flesh of someone else servant comes in and gives him ample warning she's a real person she has value she's someone's daughter she's God's daughter she's someone's wife like this covers all of our bases don't take what's not yours David that servant is so wise to come in and operate that way verses 4 and 5 he took her he took her he stole what wasn't his. He acted upon the temptation. 
that had intrigued him. And this one, listen to me very carefully, this one is stage two of his sin because what was stage one? Intrigue. He allowed his heart and his mind to be taken over by something that was ungodly. And so he was already churning this plan. Acting upon it was step two. Desiring it instead of grabbing it and holding it captive and kicking it out was step one. He took it in. He sees and he messes with his mind. Who is this person? She should be mine. She's beautiful. So he takes her. Scripture says while she's purifying herself, and I just think the contrast of what's happening, she is purifying herself, and David is corrupting himself. Floored by that. She is physically purifying herself, and David is spiritually corrupting himself in the same moment. He's intrigued. Sin one. When's the last time you repented over your desires, not your action? When's the last time you and I repented over the idea that what I want is not in line with what God would give me? It can be anywhere or anything. It can be the job, the position, you're going to college, it can be the college you want to go to. It can be the car you so desperately need or the house that you so desperately want. It can be any of those ideas. When is the last time you and I repented of something that we wanted, not something that we did? Because if our sin starts in the heart, then it always starts with what we want. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. What happens? Bathsheba's pregnant. David goes into coverage. Time to cover this up. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Let's stop there for just a minute. Verses 6 to 9, what do we see? David's going to cover his sin. He's going to work to cover what's been done. Instead of owning it, instead of stopping, like where are we at right now? We're at adultery. But it gets worse. And it gets worse by trying to cover your tracks. It gets worse because instead of stopping where you're at and repenting right then and desiring the grace and the mercy of God to overcome you and change you, you decide, I'll fix it. David decides to fix it by covering his actions. Why? Because if this woman's pregnant and her husband wasn't home, that's an issue. If he's home, now it's not so much an issue anymore. Maybe the baby is just born a little early. I mean, they obviously couldn't count, like math must have been off or whatever. Like, oh, check it out. Oh, baby was born in six months. Wow, but it looks healthy. Ten and a half pounds. Come out yelling dada. 
me tell you something about people that are in sin when they're living in it. I'm going to tell you something right now. The drug epidemic has given us a visual representation of what happens when people dabble in sin. Let me tell you what I mean. When somebody is strung out on drugs, they will do things that they never, ever would have done with a clear mind. They'll abandon family. They'll rob from people. They'll kill time, run off, hide. They'll do all of those things. Let me tell you something. Christians, especially, when you and I get in sin, we do the same stuff. We just do it with a better complexion. They do the same stuff. It has given us a visual. Our culture has given us a visual of what God always told us would happen. And David right now is, is that person. He has been intrigued. He has taken something that wasn't his. And now instead of fixing it like a man, he's going to cover it. Two things. Keep going with me. start in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will do, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem uh, that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in the presence and he drank so that David made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Oh, God help us. I told you if you didn't want to cry, you would right now. In the letter he wrote, by Uriah's own hand, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. regard do you see the parallels to what we're watching in our culture David's sin David living in his sin makes him draw other people into it with him it loves company it loves company who does he bring into it immediately Joab the commander of his army By Uriah's own hand, he delivers his death certificate to Joab, who doesn't know anything else that is going on other than what is read in this note and sealed by the king. Set Uriah to the front where the battle is hardest. My mind has constantly hit this idea as I've read through these passages in the last couple of years, but Uriah drunk is more honorable than David sober. That's terrifying. I'm having a hard conversation right now, and in the back of my mind, it keeps spinning that David is a man after God's own heart. Listen, there's hope. I just want to throw you that life preserver right now because this is deep and this is hard. There's hope. That is not erased from Scripture. 
because God was so frustrated with this moment that he decided to erase everything that David had ever done, unlike our culture right now. A man after God's own heart. But man, in this moment, he is nasty. Uriah drunk is more honorable than King David sober. Why? Because sin has gotten into his life, gotten into his heart. Uriah looks at David and says, The ark and the men are sleeping in tents in the middle of battle. I will not go down and sleep in my bed with my wife. He is honorable. My heart wants to well up because I want to be honorable like that. Would it not make perfect sense to you? I'm here. Her house is obviously close to the king's palace. I look over right there. There's my home. There is my wife. I'm going to go partake in some of the blessings God has given. But instead, Uriah is so honorable that he sleeps with the servants. And then he carries his own death certificate back. We talked about David's mighty men a while back as we were talking about the idea of, of that group of stragglers eventually becoming people that were held up in honor I read this to you before, but 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, do you know who the last one listed of David's mighty men is? Uriah the Hittite. Why is that? I don't know his physical prowess. I, he might have been the worst soldier ever. He might have been one of the greatest. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you this. He was one of the most honorable people David ever stood before. His honor and his character and his integrity land him in the list of David's mighty men with nothing but for the actions of this moment. He doesn't live any longer than this. This is it. So whatever he's done to this point lands him there, and I'm telling you right now, it's got more to do with this moment. The ark and the men are out in the field. I will, know, I will not go in partake of my wife, my home, my food, my pleasures, my blessings, while others are struggling and suffering. Constantly been floored with the beauty of this guy's character. Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. Skip down to verse 22 with me. So the messengers went out and came and told David all that Joab had sent him. So what happened? In the last eight verses, the plan has been fulfilled. I tell you what, pointing out the idea that Joab sent him to where the mighty men were, that's something that struck my heart too. I'm going to send you where the battle is the fiercest. There are mighty men there. There are valiant men and women there. We're going to send you there, and they're going to fight, and you're going to be a part of that. Man, the Lord is paying attention to how you and I do battle. So are people you work with. On your team or not on your team, they're paying attention to how you do battle. He gets sent. He dies. And so now they're going to send message back to King David, right? Joab is going to send a messenger. So the messenger went and he came and he told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance at the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Callous. Not just one. 
who you do life with is important. Who you are close to is important. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Absolutely heartbreaking. Verse 26, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Say, what happens What happens when you and I are in this process? And I'm going to show it to you in just words here in just a minute. I just want you to see it. But everything that's been underlined this morning is a part of this process. What happens when you and I are living so deep in it that we've covered our sin, that we're calloused and nasty? It becomes very inclusive. You and I bring other people into it with us. You can't help it. And we become detached. It's so scary. It's so troubling to know that I am one step away from being there too. This is not me preaching to you. This is me preaching to us. You and I are one step, one compromise, one moment of being out of position, to be tempted, to be intrigued, to draw in, to partake, to try to cover it, to be calloused. And then it's going to be inclusive. We're going to drag other people into it, right? Somebody's got to cover for us. Somebody's got to tell us what kind of a good time we're having because the Holy Spirit within us is saying, this is not good. Stop it. Repent. This is evil. This is wrong. You and I need some kind of verbal help that we're doing okay. And so we will look for someone else to draw in with us. Even if they just feed us by, man, you just had dip your head too. That's all right. Everybody's doing it. It's not a big deal affirmation of our sin, then we get detached, right? Joab is brought into the plan. Many soldiers are dying. David just dusts the story off and walks away. The wife grieves, and now the plan is done. Looks like a done deal. Looks like he's gotten away with something. Wasn't in his right mind, or should we say he wasn't in his right heart? But this pattern and cycle of sin has got him so clouded, so dark, that he can't tell that everything he's doing right now is absolutely upside down. A man of tremendous honor months ago, years ago, the one that wouldn't even harm Saul, the one that that was grieved when he cut off the tassel of his cloak or the edge of his cloak, the edge of the king's robe, he is grieved by that and he runs out of the cave and he repents right then and he says, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have raised my hand toward God's anointed. All of a sudden, is murdering his own soldiers, and it's not a big deal. Because what's he doing? He's covering his sin. So when the wife finished grieving, he takes her. She bears him a son. Everything's done, right? That last verse. That last verse in chapter 11. Even the last part of it, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, you and I are assured by the word of God that sin will be exposed. 
Numbers 32, 23 says, your sin will find you out. Luke twice, Jesus makes comments in Luke twice, nothing hidden that will not be revealed. 1 Corinthians 4 says, who will bring to light the things now hidden? There are two pieces to this that I need you to understand this morning. Number one, we live in a world where nasty people do nasty things. You and I thinking they are getting away with it is a short-term lack of theology. They are not getting away with it, which is why you and I get to subdue the idea that there needs to be vengeance right now. Why? Because the Lord is paying attention. And when they have done these things that will be found out on their own, God will expose them when it's right. So you've got that end of this that is hope-filled. This world is broken. These people are nasty. They look like they're getting away with it. And God says, I will reveal what's done in private. Just remain calm. Here's the second piece. You and I need to understand that what we do in private will also be brought out. Jesus says at the time of judgment, there will be either judgment or there will be reward for the things done in private. When you talk about service to other people, when you talk about loving other people, when you talk about the things that are done in private, man, your prayer life matters. How you serve people that never see, that matters. All of these things matter. Jesus says what's done in darkness will be brought into light. What's done in secret will be exposed for all to see. That will be the disaster of judgment, and it will be the beauty of reward. It's a wonderful double-edged sword. Jesus says, not a cup of water given in my name will be forgotten. Live your life loving people, being good, doing things in private. You say, man, the only thing I can do is pray. Then pray like crazy. Why? Because that is a work, and it is a service, especially to people like me and my family others here that need it. It is a service. Do it well and be diligent. And the things done in secret will be made known, both good and bad. Once exposed, then what's going to happen? Once exposed, what's then going to happen? You and I are going to see this story finish up next week. And actually, I'm sorry, that's kind of a lie. This story will never finish in David's whole life. There is a marked difference in what happens pre this and post this in David's life. This is a hard moment that continues to bear fruit as his life goes on. So we'll not see it end. We'll see other pieces come in and out, but we'll see David's piece of this end next week. And you know what? When you and I, when that sin is now exposed, when it's brought to light, you have two choices. You can repent and believe God and do what he says, or you can get bitter and nasty and pretend like you did no wrong. Let me just tell you, those that get bitter end up destroying themselves. We're going to watch David. We're going to read through the story of David and, and the prophet Nathan. We're going to read through Psalm 51. I'm going to show you what real repentance looks like. But here's the cycle. As they come this morning to play, here is the cycle. This is what it looks like. Out of position. Tempted. Intrigued by that temptation. When you start mowing it over, when it's getting more time, when it's, when it's living in your head and it starts to work its way down to your heart, and you just think, man, what if? And boy, that would be nice. How about that one? How about that one? That sounds really, that, that sounds really pretty good. Now, boy, it would be nice. Listen, seeds are being planted in comments like that. 
Then we're acted upon, right? Then instead of being found out, we cover them up. And then once you and I start covering our sin, we get really callous. Let me tell you, one of the most dangerous places to be as a person is this. You've been hurt. You've been really hurt. Somebody really did you wrong. And you respond by being nasty too. You respond by hurting them back. That is one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to be. Why? Because you have to repent of what you did first. And the enemy already got you with, well, you only did it because this person did this. If they hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. It is a dangerous position to be when you get that callous. You get confronted with your sin and you say, yeah, but it's really not, that sin is really not my fault. It's someone else's fault. If they hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. Listen, counseling someone that's living in that is really, really hard because it is a very demonic moment. Because you look at them and say, in order to be healed from what was done to you, you have to be forgiven of what you did. The order is you did it second. And that's really, really hard. We get detached, and then that sin gets exposed, and you and I have an opportunity to be repentant or bitter. Bitter against God, bitter against those that would call you to account, bitter against the Word of God or being written in black and white that what you're doing is wrong. Christian, as we finish up this morning, when you find yourself counseling in these situations, let me beg you right now. Make sure that the way you deliver the message is in the Word of God, totally in sync with it. That way, when the moment's over, if they're mad at you, they're really mad at the Word. That's the only way you can be safe as you and I try to love and work people through the things in their life that dishonor God. Get in the Word, know the Word, walk them to it. And then when they're mad, they're not mad at you. They're mad at the Lord. And as you start loving people, really loving people, that will be a very safe way.